This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Aeronautis, book one and two, and the author is Ronnie Crawford, and Mr. Crawford joins us now on Author Talk. Welcome. Hey, how's it going? Great to have you with us. This is going to be quite a journey. Uh, you've got some uh, quite an imagination. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. And, of course, it all revolves around uh, a lot of your research of scientific studies and knowing that we're not alone. There's extraterrestrial beings out there who you say, uh, you know, gods battle over the human race. So... We have humans that were created from the gods, extraterrestrial beings. Yes, we do. Knowing the math, the basics of mathematics comes a formula that can give us to the, a key to the universe. So this is uh, mind-stretching at the same time, just quite an adventure. Yes, it is. So tell us about yes. yourself. Give us some background and why you decided to write this book. Um, was born in 1980. Detroit, Michigan, and through my ages of uh, growing up, I had quite an imagination. You know, I always thought I was a superhero and I could save the world <laughs> as a kid. And through losing relatives, I had a feeling in my heart and that when their soul left, they went somewhere else, even in the process of going to church. And, you know, my religion was Christianity. Um, I knew it was something else something else from what I was being taught. So starting in 2009, I started out, I just started jotting all the information in my history down, and then I turned it into a book and used a little imagination. Science fiction has no limit. And that's when I came up with the Aeronautics. Well, you say man was created in the image and likeness of the gods, and these gods ruled the stars, and they're called Aeronautics. Now, where'd you come up with that name? The Aeronautics. Right. That's the name I jotted from a dream. The air at the beginning of the, you know, the alphabet was A. And then in the air comes the T's, Nazi civilization. And I brought it together, the Aeronautics. And of course, these Aeronautics, the, I guess, the creators, you know, uh, they have their enemy, the rulers of darkness, and tell us about the Zarkanians. The Zarkanians was another alien civilization. You know, you got to balance good and evil, darkness and light. But in the beginning was darkness. A dark void ruled the earth, over the earth, and then came light. The light and the darkness made humans on earth. But we had a time limit there as the humans. The Zarkanians was set, meant to come destroy the humans when the time was up. But the Aeronauti is not going to let that happen. So in the beginning, when they did make man on Earth, they created a human with genetic extraterrestrials inside of them to fight the battle. And that immortal fighter, is that Tommy Walker? Yes, turned to took a bow. Yes, it is. <laughs> well, tell us about Tommy Walker. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Tommy Walker, he was the immortal fighter, born human with extraterrestrial genetics. He was the, the the destined one to stop the battle. You know, I don't want to give him too much, but he was the destined fighter to stop the battle against his Arcanians. Everything was already meant before he even was created. So he has superpowers. Yes, he has superpowers. What are some of the things he can do? Oof. Tommy Walker, instant teleportation. Um, he can read people's minds. Um, he can change the weather with his attitude. Uh, whatever he thinks can really come about. He's very fearful. 
One of the messages of your book, besides some of the things we've already talked about, uh, that there are other worlds out there, the beginning of darkness, you also have one you uh, say reverse engineering. Now, why is that a key message of your book? Reverse engineering. Um, well, we have still fighters right now. We use reverse engineering. Um, even, in, for example, Roswell, New Mexico. If you can really put your mind back, set your mind back, if the technology, what was going on then, and then right after Roswell, New Mexico, how we jump ship straight to high-speed internet. You know, we use reverse engineering and we use technology from the gods. The gods came at certain parts of the centuries and they come back as messengers to give us knowledge of this technology and to help us. What is this, uh, what is the battle over? Uh, is it the battle to rule, you know, the universe or is there a specific uh, conflict between the Aeronautis and the Zarkanians? In the beginning, if you know your Bible in Genesis, you take the last three letters off, you got Gene in the Garden of Eden. You put that together, that means we were genetically created in the Garden of Eden. We weren't just put into a deep sleep, and they took up Adam, you know, what's supposed to have been the first man, rib, and made one man, which was Eve. It didn't happen like that. We were genetically created. In that process, the Aeronautis of the gods knew that this battle had to be taking place because of our souls. Our souls had free will. But the Arcanians didn't like that. They had to fight over that. The battle was really over the man of free will. The battle about freedom, I guess, what it comes down to. Absolutely. So is there going to be more to come? Absolutely. Books three <laughs> and four is on the way. <laughs> Books three and four. All right. All right. Now, uh, besides Tommy Walker, is there a female hero in the book? Absolutely. Venus. Venus. And she, yes, it is. Tell us about Venus. Venus. Planet Venus. She looked upon by the gods for help. They come to help the humans. Venus is the planet, came into human flesh, manifested, set side by side with Cabal, and to join him in the modern battle for humanity. Now, you mentioned Cabal. Uh, tell us about him. Cabal is Tommy Walker. Ah. Okay. <laughs> Cabal is Tommy Walker. Yeah. All right, that's his. It's Tommy Walker with the knowledge. Once he gets the knowledge, his name changes and he ages with the mathematics. And then there's Zarkon. He must be with the Zarkanians. Yeah. He's the ruler of the Zarkanians. Zarkon. Now, are there special weapons, special. Uh, uh, powers, magic, uh, what what are we uh, dealing with? Uh, we're dealing with powers, telekinesis, uh, mental capacity, and with the humans, we're dealing with invisible weapons, invisible suits, um, you know, stuff that the humans knew about, our federal government knew about, dealing with the Illuminati knew about that this time will come. They had these secret weapons. They was already working on them. Area 51, Base 89, that's located in Montana. They was already working on these weapons. So they were waiting on this time to come. Why did the death of your uncle play such an important part in the creation of this book? Well, William Hawkins, nicknamed the Uncle Bill, always told me. I asked him as even a kid, I said, Uncle, why we never, in certain areas, people never see UFOs and ETs. He said, well, son, he called me son. He said, we always spend our time looking down and never up. He said, you're going to see something one day, trust me. If we think that we're alone, we got to be selfish. So the message, overall message of your book is to, I guess, think beyond, think beyond what, the physical evidence that we uh, some 
sometimes put our trust in totally that there's much more going on and you're just trying to take us to a new possibility. Absolutely. And to not, don't, to never distinguish religion and science. They both play a role in each other. So they don't conflict. No. Often you hear that, you know, science versus religion, but you see them coming together. Absolutely. Mathematics. Mathematics compares the two. The, the math and the science all add up to these who religion calls gods. They're really extraterrestrials in your mind. Yes. Extraterrestrials. Stars, keys in the universe, everything, you know, everything has a reason at a date and a number of time. Once that equal that date comes, then it equals a reaction. So does your book give any kind of prophecy for our times, or is it completely fiction? Um, no, it's some fiction. And, yes, it does, it does give prophecy of our time. Um so Once you, you read the book, you will get the idea of what's to come. You've really incorporated the Bible, uh, much, uh, many prophecies of the Bible into your book. Absolutely. Well, very fascinating, very different. Uh, what other, are there any other key characters or storyline we need to talk about in the time we have left? Um... Just the fact that, um, yeah, that's pretty about, that, that covers everything. We pretty much covered everything. Okay. Yeah. Well, again, everyone, the title of the book, The Aeronautis, book one and two. And Ronnie Crawford is the author, and he's working on book three and four as we speak. Tell us how to get your book. I'm on iTunes. Go online, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Arthur House. You can just you can just Google my name, Google the book, and it'll come right up. Well, thank you, Mr. Crawford, for being with us on Author Talk. You're welcome. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamamanyhats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk. Brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. 
The title of the book, Into Happy Havens. And the author is Dennis Coates. And Dennis joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Dennis. Hi, Steve. Good to talk to you. Uh, great to have you with us all the way from Merry England. <laughs> Not always so merry. <laughs> Not always so merry. Well, we that's another discussion, I guess. But we're gonna focus <laughs> we're gonna focus on your book Into Happy Havens. Let me read just a few things so everyone can get a general idea about your book. You say this. Martin Hammond is the young and inexperienced manager of a group-owned hotel in outer London. He knows a lot about practical skills, but has little experience in managing a staff brigade of 80 men and women. And he also has some misguided sense of the ridiculous that leads him into conflict with staff and his masters in the head office. And so this story has some, uh, I guess, has some themes to kind of teach us about the hotel business and how to manage it, as well as the romance that goes on between Martin and Naomi, right? You right, Steve. Yeah, that sums it up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about yourself, Dennis, and why you decided to write this book. Uh, okay, so my background is entirely in the hotel industry, Steve. It was um, a family occupation, but I went into it as a young professional. And I was trained in London at the Savoy Hotel, and then in Lausanne in Switzerland at the Lausanne Palace. Mostly because in that period, sort of post-World War II, they were about the only few places in the world, Switzerland particularly, being one which uh, avoided World War II, and still had a full range of what were virtually pre-war facilities available for well-endowed visitors. By well-endowed, I think I mean wealthy. <laughs> well, are your characters true to life, or did you just create them? They're pretty true to life. They are based on uh, real people that I observed and knew, mm -hmm. but obviously I've changed their names in order to protect myself from being, I don't know, legal actions, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so they're very believable and memorable because they have some unique personalities. Now, um, you're trying to give us a little inside view on how major hotels are run. Mm-hmm, yep. What's some of the unique aspects? They are very peculiar places, and by that I mean unusual. Mm -hmm. In as much as that their daily routine is quite often, it's the reverse of a, a normal existence in an office or a factory. For example, we start the day off actually at dawn, when um, everybody is leaving, and that's a very busy time, mm -hmm. because you've got up to several hundred people staying, and when they go, they want to go quickly. They don't want to hang about. And at the same time, the whole of the house, as it's called, i.e. all the bedrooms and the public rooms and the service areas and the function rooms have got to be cleaned and maintained, and put in order and made ready for the day's activities. So it is in many ways, Steve, the nearest analogy I can give to you is that an hotel is very much like show business in as much as the people engaged in it are a bit larger than life, slightly unusual, and they all have a deadline and they're working towards it. For example, the kitchen you know, has got to um, serve breakfast and then almost immediately clear the decks in order to be able to serve lunch to two and a half hours later. And it may well be engaging in special functions like weddings or meetings or uh, affinity groups coming together and they've got to be catered for individually. Immediately after that stops, well, then the house starts to fill up again with overnight guests. And the whole cycle begins over and over again. So it's like actors working towards 
curtains up and getting into a major flap just before the curtain goes up. Does that, does that make sense, Steve? It does, and certainly it's, it's like a little community of its own. Now tell us about Martin Hammond. What makes him tick? Uh, well, he is a modern young man. If I have any models on which to base it, it is my own son. I've got two grown-up sons, and I've watched them go through all the stages of people who are wishing to found a career and start to do something which will be meaningful and will maybe leave a footprint on earth after they've gone. They go through the most amazing traumas and tests and trials. Very often, you know, good judgment would have kept them out of a lot of the troubles that they get into. And I don't mean major criminal misdemeanors. I just mean the trouble they have with uh, relationships with the opposite sex, with the same sex, with colleagues, neighbors, people like that. They get problems, many and many of them, and they don't always solve them very wisely. And I guess that's um, what Martin Hammond is like. He's just 27, so he's been through the normal training routine, been to college, been to university, knows how to acquit himself in a kitchen and wait at table, knows how the computers work in the reception area, and so he's considered old enough to be a manager. Hmm? That's a huge assumption on the part of his employers that anybody at that tender age has got the ability to be a manager and to manage proficiently. Mostly because he's got a big brigade of staff, over 80 people, and that is almost a full-time job for what in UK we would call a personnel manager. He's a man who looks after the people who are there and make sure that their personal and professional problems are dealt with wisely and well. Martin lacks that capability. He's an enthusiast. He's a trier. If he was in the armed forces, he'd be either a hero or dead. Because he sticks his neck out where he shouldn't stick it out. <laughs> so he gets in conflict with the head office uh, most of the time. Uh, tell us about this district manager, J.C. Ah, yeah, now. He is um, sort of a real-life villain. There's, uh, there's two considerations here, Steve. One is uh, I was told when I was first writing the book, you've got to have romance, you've got to have conflict, you've got to have a beginning, a middle, an end, a conclusion. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be very difficult in the well-organized and well-oiled world of luxury hotels to introduce conflict. It's not easy. The vast majority of the people who pass through hotels are amiable, easygoing people. They're not looking for problems. And they are easily, their problems are fairly easily resolved. So, here's our young man not managing particularly well. And his boss is this man called JC, known only by his initials. And he is responsible for the conduct and profitability between seven and ten hotels. JC, like all managers, has got a choice. He can either run it, he can run his crew ragged, getting the very best out of them, and always persuading and bullying them to make greater and longer efforts that will be more profitable. Or he can be a team leader who encourages people to do their very best and organizes their professional development so that by improving themselves, they improve his area status and improve the profitability that way. So JC is one of the old-fashioned ones. He's a bullying roisterer. He thinks he can get more out of people by shouting at them and squeezing them. He's not a team leader who encourages and develops. 
Sounds like sounds like real life to me. <laughs> often, often we run into those types, don't we? Now, Martin, of course, Martin, he just falls in love with Naomi. What? How? What kind of importance of of the romance in this uh, part of the story is that a key theme? It's a, it's a key theme it is for all of us. We get to um, you know mid-twenties, and we think we've got a career ahead of us. It's very difficult not to fall in love and to be attracted to females and think of their input into the rest of your lives hmm? and to start to move into a relationship that will develop. If you're a professional career man, you put it to one side and forget about it. If you're a normal red-blooded male like you and me, Steve, we fall for it. And it doesn't improve our careers. <laughs> it makes it a bit more difficult. <laughs> well, and then there's Walter. Now, he really doesn't uh, appear until the last chapter, but he's kind of his character is pervades the whole novel. Yeah, yeah. He, his influence is there all the time. He is uh, an old-fashioned entrepreneur. He's a man who's made it, who got to the top and succeeded by his own efforts and by cooperating with a lot of other people like bankers and investors and insurance companies to buy and develop property. And he has an instinct for what the market really requires before the market knows it themselves. So he's an entrepreneur. He's got an instinct for a profit and a vocation and an investment. And he has developed a chain of hotels in which Martin now works. He's what's called a unit manager. And JC is the district manager. He's responsible for seven to ten hotels. So without uh, Walter's drive, none of them would exist. But Walter has left his indelible footprint all over the group. He's there everywhere. He pervades everything. And the computer, which is uh, which controls all the groups and um, analyzes their profitability and contribution, is an extension of his personality. This is he want he wants the computer to do. The computer does it, and it becomes a procedure. That's what the book is all about, whether the procedures should determine what an organization does or whether the procedures should just be a guideline for managers to know what to do for the best. There's our modern conflict, procedure versus people. We have just a couple minutes left, Dennis. Uh, Now, humor plays a very important part in this storyline. Uh-huh, yeah. It's, um, it pervades everything that I do, Steve. I perceive the whole of my existence through a veil of humor. Hmm? There are very few situations, um, even gallows, you know, have a certain macabre humor to them, but it pervades through everything that um, I do or have done nearly all my life. I'm not um, looking for people who fall over on banana skins or walk into glass doors. That's slapstick. That's not humor. Hmm? What I like, look for, and what I enjoy most is the hidden humor that comes to the surface under certain circumstances. There are many, many examples of it. Um, depends how much time you've got. I've got one uh, extract I can read you from the book if you've got the time. If not, you call it, Steve. Just push me on. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's just cover a couple other things. We don't have much time left. Uh, one of the things that you comment on, you say, sometimes it is necessary to use a fiction in order to tell a greater truth. So in this case, what is the greater truth about uh, happy... Hmm. Happy Havens. Happy Havens. The greater truth, Steve, is that 
these are just ordinary organizations like any other retailer or supplier. They're not special. They manage to maintain a special isolated status, which is not necessarily deserved. Within them, there are all sorts of dishonesties, bad habits, exploitations, all the things that go on in commerce everywhere, anytime. But they're a damn sight better at covering it up than most. <laughs> and, and, and often a, a fairly flamboyant uh, group of folks that are kind of performing all the time in front of the public? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> like actors on a stage, huh? actors and actresses. Uh-huh, yep. All right, yep. <laughs> all right. Sounds fascinating and sounds like a, a great soap opera. <laughs> well, you flatter me, Steve. I'm, you know, I'm pleased <laughs> by your opinion. Well, because, we, go ahead. Pardon. No, go yeah. ahead, finish. Because it has all the things that um, I associate with North America, which is big of heart, large in space, great in character, and underneath, kindly intolerant. How's that for an endorsement of North America? Well, thank you. And we've been listening to Dennis Coates all the way from merry old England, and he is 80-something years young. How old are you? Just 80. Just 80. Just yep. 80. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you sound pretty spry to me. And he's written <laughs> this book, Into Happy Havens. Uh, Dennis, tell us how to get your book. You apply through Author House. They're the publishers, and there's a paperback version from Barnes and Noble, Barnes and Noble, or Amazon, and uh, an ebook also available through, gosh, half a dozen North American and Canadian outlets. Well, thank Name you, one, Dennis. I think is Amazon. Thank you, Dennis, for being with us on Author Talk. That was a pleasure. The pleasure was mine, Steve. I enjoyed it. I'm sorry the time went so quickly. It always does. <laughs> You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Whether you're four and a half or 100, you can retrain your brain. Learning RX, the radio show, is on toginet.com. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central Time with Martin Kruger. Learning RX programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where Learning RX comes in. Call today, 903 617 6899. 903 617 6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that Learning RX can help you with. It's not a product, it's an experience. So join us for Learning RX, the radio show with Martin Kruger. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Change You Can Really Believe In, The Obama Legacy of Broken Promises and Failed Policies. And the author is Joseph Toomey. And Joseph joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Joseph. Good afternoon, Steve. Thank you for inviting me. 
This is a very comprehensive work. Everyone, you're going to be impressed. Uh, Joseph has done tremendous amount of research on this. Uh, for example, 2,100 footnotes. That's incredible. Uh, the book is near 700 pages, but it covers every broken promise and failed policy uh, imaginable. Uh, it's kind of hard to believe that one person could do all this, right? <laughs> could accomplish this. <laughs> Well, it was three years in the making, and he certainly racked up a, a great legacy of broken promises. So there was a lot of material to work with. Yeah, it's an astounding story, uh, really, and as you point out, one that has received precious little attention from the media. But now it is getting attention from this book. So, Joseph, tell us a little bit about yourself and what was the motivation, what was the driving power to do this? Yeah, well, the story on this book really was that I, I noticed shortly after, and even before Inauguration Day, that Obama seemed to be breaking an awful lot of policies. Even before he was inaugurated, he had announced that he was no longer interested in pursuing the windfall profits tax on uh, energy companies, on oil companies, uh, because oil had dropped from $147 a barrel during July of 2008, down to below $40 a barrel uh, by December of 2008. Uh, he had, had a, abandoned his promises to feminists to pursue the Freedom of Choice Act. He had uh, obviously garnered a lot of attention when he walked away from his promise to follow the rules of public finance for the campaign. So he had a, a, amassed a record even before Inauguration Day, but shortly thereafter, he began racking up many, many more, and I started off just making a list with no intention of writing a book, but that list began to grow larger and larger, and after maybe five or six months, it got to be the point where I was in danger of a book-length manuscript if I wasn't really careful, and uh, at some point, I think last year around the fall, I decided, well, I put so much effort into uh, cataloging all these broken promises that I just decided to go back and put it in book-length form, uh, writing uh, something more interesting than simply he said this and then did that kind of stuff, uh, something that would capture the reader's uh, uh, imagination and would be interesting to the casual reader, even somebody who doesn't typically read nonfiction titles. I also had to do a tremendous amount of research, as you referenced in the 2100 footnotes, but that greatly improved the work. It obviously allowed me to correct a lot of mistakes I had made, as well as to put some more in-depth backstory and more perspective, and, and it greatly improved the work overall. So how long did it take you to do all this research? Well, like I said, I had been working on it for three years, so it's hard to put it, put my finger on it. Yeah. Uh, but it, I would say that the lion's share of the work actually went into the title of, uh, following the fall of, of last year. Um, but prior to that, I had done a tremendous amount of work. I mean, when I was looking back at some of the earlier versions that I had saved in my hard drive backup, I mean, I was just going back and taking a look, and there... There was a tremendous amount of effort that had been put into it prior to that. So it's hard to say. I really don't know. But I would just say the easy answer is it's been three years in the making and a lot of attention to learning what the situation was, cataloging where the research material could be found, writing the narrative, rewriting it, correcting the mistakes, and so on and so forth. Uh, so it was essentially a three-year job. There are 13 chapters in total and a lot of important issues covered, a lot of uh, promises, broken promises, and failed policies. Now, you feel pretty strongly, you're really opposed, resolutely, as you say, opposed to the Obama's Green Energy Program. Give us some details about some promises and then, of course, what he did. Yeah, certainly. So I would say that there's probably uh, no more area of greater interest to me personally. In fact, it happens to be the subject of a, a second book that I'm writing right now. And just before we rang on the line, I was actually doing some research on that. But 
I mean, this whole area of green energy has been championed by hucksters who have enjoyed public adulations and lucrative careers. They've received global recognition and coveted awards. Uh, And they've been egged on, I think, by mass media, who clearly is in the tank for this idea. But these are people, these these people who are promoting this vision, uh, they have really no idea uh, what really it will entail and how much of a failure it would be if it ever came into being. So there are people who stand to earn enormous uh, profits from it, and it's backed up by, I think, environmental activists whose real agenda can best be described as lights out. Uh, and there's obviously a whole bunch of cynical politicians who are looking to devolve more political power to Washington. But the truth is that green energy will never be able to deliver anywhere near the amount of energy that would be needed to replace fossil fuel energy, not in the short term, not in the medium term, not even in the long term. And the interesting thing is that Obama's Department of Energy disagrees with President Obama and recognizes the truth. You can look at their forecasts out to 2035, and and fossil fuel continues to play the lion's share of the role there in their energy forecasts. So there's very little delusion in places where people actually know what they're talking about. But if you listen to the hucksters like Gore and President Obama, we're only going to need fossil fuel for a short period of time, and then we'll be able to transition to wind towers and and uh, solar panels and uh, biofuels and all this stuff. The truth is that would amount to a lights-out uh, outcome, and that would obviously put the United States into third-world status. We'd, we'd be on, on par with countries like Burkina Faso and the Central African Republic if we were to go that route. And, of course, you can't get much bigger and... Uh excuse the pun here, but bigger than the chapter on the deficit and the debt. Yeah. I mean, so obviously um, one of the interesting things that Barack Obama chose to do was to criticize his predecessor on the debt and deficit. And you would think that for a guy whose plan was to unleash oceans of deficit spending, in pursuit of his program, that he would have held his fire on that one issue, but he chose not to do it. And he even called George Bush unpatriotic for having amassed $2 trillion in accumulated budget deficits over the course of eight years. Well, the interesting thing is that versus $2 trillion over eight years, Obama will amass $5.3 trillion over just four years. So I'm not sure what that makes Obama. If if Bush was unpatriotic, what does that mean Obama uh, will be in in uh, comparison? I guess he doesn't believe in math. <laughs> well, obviously not, because if you look at the math on any of these other things, particularly the green energy program, I mean, it's a failure from the start. Yeah, so, look at Solyndra. Look at that debacle. Yeah, I mean, and it's not just that. I mean, that's the one that everybody knows, but there's been dozens of others that have failed. I mean, nobody could tell you about range fuels. Uh, they sunk $152 million, million in loans that will never be paid back. And the astonishing thing is all of these things were backed up by Obama cronies. Now, he had promised that he was going to do away with the cronyism that he had uh, criticized his predecessor for following, and yet all of these green energy debacles uh, have crony fingerprints all over them. These were basically uh, rewards that were steered to large campaign contributors uh, for bundling contributions. So uh, th- that theme is played pretty strongly throughout the book. You'll see that not just in the green energy area, but also in the area where we talk about government operations and, and ethics. I mean, he, uh, Barack Obama championed him, himself as some sort of ethics leader. He never tired of reminding audiences that he led the way for ethics reform in the Illinois state capitol when he was a state senator. Uh, but then he turned around and awarded uh, crony uh, contributors 
uh, ambassadorships to a much higher degree than his predecessor had done. In fact, it was so bad that the uh, Foreign Service uh, Officers Association actually wrote a letter of complaint to the Congress and to the Senate saying, you need to really stop confirming these cronies. Uh, more of these ambassadorships should be going to career Foreign Service officers rather than uh, crony contributors who are bundled campaign contributions. It was as many as something like 46% of the uh, seats, uh, ambassadorships, had gone to uh, crony contributors as opposed to something like 28% during the Clinton administration and maybe 31% during the Bush years. So it was really uh, an incredible story. Well, he learned well in Chicago. That's Chicago politics. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, so he just brought the same level of political corruption with him. Exactly. So, again, we we can't even begin to uh, really look at all these different issues, these broken promises. Uh, In addition, of course, we know health care, economic achievements, tax policy, diplomacy, and foreign policy. I guess right now... uh, uh, Joseph, what would be one of your more favorite <laughs> areas to talk about, well, or, or well, another I mean, one, so, anyway? Yeah, so so we have this uh, Obamacare decision that will probably be unleashed by the Supreme Court next week. But, I mean, aside from the constitutional legality aspect of it, I mean, I think it's important to point out that that people might say, well, health care, he, he lived up to his promise there, so why would you say that that's a broken promise? And the devil is always in the details there. So when you look at the specific plan that he outlined as a candidate, he bitterly criticized his opponents, John Edwards and Hillary Clinton, because they supported the health care insurance mandate that obligates every person to purchase health insurance or pay a fine. And he promised that he would never sign any health care bill that contains such a mandate. Obviously, Obamacare contains that mandate, and now that may be the one piece that, that causes it to be rendered unconstitutional. He also vowed that he'd never sign any reform measure that didn't contain a public option. But the version that passed the Congress and he signed into law doesn't contain that public option. He vowed that he'd never sign any measure that increased the budget deficit by even a, a single dime, uh, that it would uh, uh, avoid um, uh, raising the deficit. Uh, well, Obamacare is going to cost $2 trillion to $2.5 trillion over a 10-year period, and it's going to cause the deficit to soar. He also promised that you can keep your doctor if you like it, you can keep your health care plan if you like it, that it would drive down costs for the average family by $2,500 a year, it would improve the quality of health care, it would bend the cost curve down for the country as a whole, it would provide universal coverage, it wouldn't raise taxes on the middle income groups, it would cut layers of federal bureaucracy, it wouldn't involve rationing, it would hurt uh, it wouldn't uh, damage or hurt marginal workers. It would um, benefit special interest groups, or it would not benefit special interest groups. Uh, it would Everything would be transparent, and all the negotiations would be broadcast on C-SPAN. It would involve uh, or permit drug reimportation. It would allow for cheap, generic alternatives. There wouldn't be any backroom skullduggery and backroom deals. All of those promises <laughs> and more. Yeah went into the toilet. There wasn't one single promise I could find that Obama had made about his health care policy that he actually lived up to. Well, other titles of the different chapters, ethics and government operations, national defense, anti-terror policy, immigration and race relations, environment and scientific integrity, domestic, social and family issues, and post-partisanship and then the final chapter, Barack Obama, the man, just in the minute or so we have left. <laughs> Give us your view of Barack Obama, the man. Yeah, I mean, so that chapter really covers a lot of different promises uh, that, like, I, I guess you would, you could say they could be squeezed into one or the other cha- of the 12 chapters that cover particular policy areas. 
But in fact, what, what we find when we look over those is that we learn a lot more about Barack Obama as an individual. Uh, and so they, these kinds of promise-breaking uh, issues speak much more to Obama as an individual than they say about green energy or any particular thing. It shows, I think, this sort of astonishing level of arrogance that the man is characterized by. I mean, he pretended to be this hands-off guy, uh, and then he, you know, he claiming he's not going to um, allow for any kind of uh, hands-on. That he likes the free market. That he, he, um, you know, you could guarantee your auto warranty with GM. I mean, all of these different things a hundred different things in this chapter uh, that point to, really, this is Barack Obama, uh, government-believing technician who, uh, whose range, who believes in the limitless competency of government uh, is essentially uh, unbroken, that there is no aspect of our life for which government doesn't have some uh, ability to enter and manage and micromanage different aspects of, of our lives. And that tells us a lot more about Barack Obama than uh, it really we does. ever hope yeah. to learn by reading a thousand issues of the right. New York Times or watching a thousand broadcasts of CBS News. Well, it's like Reagan said, uh, the the most scariest words, you know, we're from the government and we're here to help we're you. We're here to help. Yeah, right. so that's Barack Obama summed up. He believes in yeah. that. He's a collective guy, collectivism, and not the individual. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the incredible thing, to me, the most astonishing thing about it was the level of venom he poured on his predecessor regarding anti-terror policy. Mm. And then he turned around and did essentially every single aspect of the right. Bush anti-terror policy. That was, I, I don't think the public really understands the degree to which they were bamboozled by that. Hmm. I think leftists who are deeply engaged in politics do, and they're deeply disappointed in Obama over that. But I think by and large people don't realize that essentially every single aspect of the Bush anti-terror policy uh, ha has been uh, resurrected. We've been listening to Joseph Toomey. He is the author of his very comprehensive work with 2,100 footnotes, Change You Can Really Believe In, The Obama Legacy of Broken Promises and Failed Policies. Joseph, tell us how to get your book. Yeah, so it's available on Amazon. It's available on Barnes & Noble. You can get it through the Author House publisher website. And hopefully it'll be available in stores wherever books are sold. Thank you, Joseph, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it.